Are you a culinary traveler? It has been hard going in this pandemic year. Beverly Stephen and Barbara Mathias discuss the culinary travel business, plans put on hold, and their new travel book on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Today we're here with Beverly Stephen and Barbara Mathias. Beverly and Barbara are the co-authors of On the Road with Flavor Forays, an insider's tour of four of America's hottest food cities, Austin, Charleston, Portland, and New Orleans. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. We're it's great to be here. Great to see you and New Orleans. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book. When we tell people what we do for a living, that we take chefs on culinary tours, the first reaction is, can I come? <laughs> and of course they can't because there's, there's only room for 12 to 15 chefs on one of these trips. And the idea of writing the book was to provide sort of an armchair travelogue and make our travels available to a much wider audience. Well, and yes. to underscore, Beverly's a writer. And when she can't write, she's pacing. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean during the pandemic when she couldn't wait, wait. or travel, right? When we were grounded, yeah. When we're we grounded. were grounded. Yeah. <laughs> and so, all the people who would travel with us are basically grounded. You know, so many hotels are closed and restaurants are closed. It's, they're all grounded. And, and so do you think that the travel business, especially the culinary travel business, is going to bounce back? I believe it will. I believe, I don't know when, you know, that, that's the million dollar question. But I, I, I sense a hunger for it. Like the, when I'm talking to the people that we would visit, the chefs or the, the sponsors who traveled with us, I, I just sense this hunger to get back on the road and get back out there. And one of the things I was looking at our book this morning in, in just the New Orleans segment, and I noticed that there was a lot of changes already since we stopped traveling. And when the book was published, you know, we, we um, being at Food Arts Magazine for all those years, 25 plus years, were always on the pulse of what was going on in the chef community. Uh -huh. And I feel for the first time in, 30 years out of the loop just because we're grounded and you're not we're not seeing the people that we would normally see who would fill you in on the the buzz of what's you know it's um there's a hunger yeah. i believe yeah i think it's pent-up hunger too so i'm i'm hoping that when everything opens up the floodgates open and people really start to travel and move around again and go out to eat and all of that and it's, it's not a gradual thing, but it just explodes out and people start doing it. 
you know, I, I had that same experience. I wrote a book called Unique Eats and Eateries New Orleans that came out right before the pandemic. And it's got about 97, 98 restaurants in it. And I think a good 35, maybe 40 are closed. Oh, they're not going to reopen, not just yeah. close, but are closed forever. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's terrible because it's like a little document that said on this day, these restaurants were open and thriving and now they're not. It's, it's awful. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's tragic is what it is because yeah. there's so many industries have been devastated by the pandemic for, for certain, but the, hospitality and restaurant industry is the number one employer in our country. Right. right. And, you know, if that goes down. Oh, yeah. It, it's just awful. I mean, I do believe, like, we did have in New Orleans, a new restaurant has opened called Alma, which is really terrific. And I think it's incredibly brave that somebody decided to open a restaurant at this time. But it's, it's also kind of a nostalgic time in terms of, is this one going to reopen or, you know, how old is the owner and do they have it in them, you know, to start exactly. over? Exactly. I've even seen in my little town in Connecticut, dear friends who have just thrown in the towel, you know, they're of a certain age and it's just like, you know, yeah, I could be doing better things. <laughs> by we we fighting saw uphill. Sorry. <laughs> We saw that in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. There were people of a certain age who just said, I can't, I can't reopen, I, I can't start over. And so I feel that there's a, an element of deja vu about it. It's a different cause, but it's the same feeling. Well, it is, but you know, the other thing is some, some places are starting to reopen them. We have a friend who does consulting with resorts and hotels, and he's working with a few large resorts in various cities who are strategizing for their reopening, who have started to reopen. And so I think there are people who are getting poised, you know, for this next iteration, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that will be good too when, when we're able to start traveling again. I think our people who are food and beverage executives and chefs would be very interested in seeing how people in various cities are managing to reinvent themselves. It, it's going to be the, the new topic. The new topic. How, yeah. how, how, how are we how, dealing how, with yeah. the pandemic and how can you help us learn more about it and what are you predicting? What are you seeing happening? That people are starting to reopen, but they have to be, they have to be very careful about all these protocols, this sanitation and the air purifying and God knows what. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of technical stuff, but I, I think there is stuff available and hotels are starting to invest in it so that they can safely have guests. But do you think that it's going to have a lasting effect? Will there be actual changes in the way we do business going forward so that even five years from now, assuming that we all are safe and whatever, that there'll be a lasting change in protocols and things like that? Well, don't you think that it's like, like uh, my parents lived through the Depression mm -hmm. and that was a lingering result in, in our household and how they viewed my wastefulness or you know that kind oh, of yeah. I, 
the messaging was was always wrapped with the you know do you really need that so i i think that once you go through something this you know impactful it, it will probably stay whether it's whether it just is reduced to a gratefulness for what we do have and new freedoms and we can go to restaurants and we can and as a restaurant owner we can you know serve people who knows but i think this is larger than a lot of things that we've lived through uh, yeah. and i think it's gonna you know linger you know now now when you see anything on television like say a movie that was made a couple of years ago or something and there's crowds in the street and all these people <laughs> <I know. laughs> Why are they standing so close together? <laughs> <laughs> They're hugging strangers, yes. <laughs> They're hugging strangers. <laughs> or those videos they used to do in Grand Central with the huge crowds that everybody would break out into a dance. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now there's like three people. See that again anytime soon, yeah. Well, let's get back to your book. So what would you say, you, you know, you've got those four wonderful cities, Austin, Charleston, Portland and New Orleans. So how are they the same? How are they different? What is the thread that kind of goes through them that makes them such great food cities? Well, I think the thread is they all have a great food culture and they all have a number, a number of people in, in some cases, sort of the younger generation too, that's driving things forward. They're all very passionate about what they do. And that's one of the things that our uh, travelers find very inspiring is hearing the, the passionate stories of the people that devote their lives to whatever it is, fishing, farming, having some sort of innovative restaurant. You know, some of the cities have, a, have an old cultural tradition, like New Orleans and Charleston have a really like solid old culture, whereas Portland is very, very young and very new. So they're not all the same, but they all have a devotion to good food. And I, I think that it runs through whether it's the old guard or the new, the new up and coming chefs, that, that is exactly the, the cord that, that holds the whole thing together is that passion and whether they're uh, producing food from the Olympia provisions in Portland who does the charcuterie to the wasabi farmer out on the coast of Oregon. I mean, who's ever been, we are the luckiest people alive. Who's ever been to a wasabi farm? You know, we, we've been to a wasabi farm. <laughs> and it's gorgeous. You wouldn't even know what it looks like. You know? Amazing, amazing. And, and then come to find out the wasabi we've been eating all of our lives is not really wasabi. Oh, wow, what is I it? I know, I know, it's shocking. What is it? Well, Bev took notes. What is it, Bev? What <laughs> does she explained it now? It's it's colored with food coloring or something. Is it horseradish colored with green coloring? I it's think so something like that. It's not yeah. really from the wasabi plant. It's it's pretty rare to actually get actual wasabi. wasabi. Like you you'd need to be a Nobu to have actual wasabi. Yeah. From the plant. Wow. Yeah, wow. that was shocking. So wow. anyway, we're. We um, oh, wonderful, you know, Nanette Bedway, who takes our pictures, you know, Nanette's a great photographer. We have some great photography of the wasabi plant itself. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that's, that's really interesting. And so tell me something about Austin. What, what would you say is, was really a spectacular about Austin? Well, 
I, I think the text of spirit is just wonderful. One of the people we know there, Susan Aller, is one of the owners of uh, Fall Creek Vineyards. They were pioneers in the Texas wine industry. And she's just great. I hadn't talked to her for literally like 20 years. And we got on the phone with her to arrange this trip. And she said, well, you know what? I'll have my friend, Chef Jesse, come out to the ranch and he can shoot a feral hog and then barbecue it for your group. Yeah, we thought, well, wow, that's so Texas, you know. <laughs> yeah, that is so Texas. <laughs> uh, yeah, I always feel a kinship with Austin just because it's such a music city, too. And music yeah. and food seem to go together. And in New Orleans, food and music are never far apart. So um, I just exactly. I think that that's a, a great way that Austin, which is so much more of a new city than New Orleans, are connected still, you know. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And of course, Charleston has fabulous food. And I love the fact that many of the ethnic groups that are in New Orleans and that were in New Orleans were also in Charleston. And yet the food is so incredibly different. It often has the same ingredients, but it tastes, it has such a different taste. It's, mm -hmm. it's different. I think it's because of the, the English in Charleston and the French in New Orleans, which gave a different approach to it all. But it's interesting with the same ingredients, the same influences, it, it's so different. Charleston, I think um, all, all the places that we're talking about have a strong relationship between the food producers, whether it's the fishermen or the cheesemakers or the winemakers or the, and the restaurant community and the chefs. But Charleston, we met, you know, the actual fisher person, uh -huh. shrimper, who was a, a lady shrimper, mm -hmm. um, who, who had us out to her dock and her boats. You know, it's just this, it's, it, you, you can't help but notice the, the connection or when they come with, you know, the huge uh, pallets of clusters of oysters from you know it and throw that on a, a grill i mean it's just it's it's incredible it's you're really close to the source right um or, and then that's one of the things that you know beverly is so great being such a great reporter is following um to the source following the lead and and connecting all those dots and so that's what we really try to do for um the, the folks that we're showing around is that you know showing them all aspects of the food culture so the producers play a, a, a key role, obviously, but it's fun to meet them and their passion. And so that, and again, that, that ties the whole thing together again. Right, right. Passion. I, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, so, you know, too, the enslaved populations really made such great contributions. And in Charleston, we're very lucky to work with B.J. Dennis, who's sort of the unofficial ambassador of Gullah cuisine. Uh -huh. And, mm -hmm. uh, he cooks a lunch for us on the shrimp dock. So we learn, you know, about the, the contributions of the enslaved people and how that's really affected the cuisine and, you know, continues to do so today. Well, it certainly made a difference in New Orleans. I mean, absolutely, no question. Absolutely. And you just can't really uh, avoid knowing it. It's just kind of uh, one of those things that's very very key to to it all it's really is too bad that for so long it was 
not ever talked about, but now I'm very glad that it's front and center. So that's good. So one one of our visits to Charleston, and we had a lunch with BJ Dennis on the dock. One of our guests was the executive chef of the new museum that was about to open in DC. The uh, what was the actual name of it? It's the African American Museum. Yeah. And yeah, African American History Museum. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and so Albert Lucas was with us on, on the trip and met BJ Dennis uh-huh. on the shrimp dock and, of course, was fascinated by, by his wealth of Gullah knowledge and the source of the food. Anyway, those two hooked up on our trip, and then um, subsequently they had BJ come to D.C. to see the museum and try the food. And the chef actually changed the menu at the museum as a result of his conversations with B.J. Dennis and what he learned. Wow, that's, yeah. that's wonderful to yeah. know that. And, and that, to know that the Smithsonian was that flexible. Because, you know, sometimes you have this feeling these huge museums, especially government things that may have a bureaucracy that won't, won't be flexible. That's, that's wonderful. That's what's so cool about what we do, Liz, is that you know, we have basically 15 chefs with us. So mm-hmm. whether or not they're in charge of a huge museum in DC as part of the Smithsonian, or they're in charge of all of culinary for Marriott Corp, there's they're chefs standing on a shrimp dock with us talking to BJ and, and things just happen when you get a group of chefs together. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really great. So, I, I know this is going back into the past, but how do you see the connection between your 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 company uh, flavor forays, and how is it connected to food arts? Is it was food arts sort of like a platform to move into flavor forays, or did you always want to do more travel, or how did all that come about? Well, like Beverly says, a lot of us have always traveled to eat, <laughs> uh, which I think is, is pretty much true of, of, of us. But I'm going to let Beverly, since she was in charge of all the interesting parts of food arts, answer this question. <laughs> Your group paid for it. So. <laughs> I think what we tried to do at food arts was we, we were very news driven. We tried to cover what was happening or what was about to happen in the world of food. So chefs felt very connected uh, with each other and with the knowledge of what was going on. You know, unfortunately, the magazine was closed in 2014. So after that, we were in the position of needing a new business. And um, actually, the the idea was that that, um, some of the same sponsors from who were advertisers at Food Arts would be willing to sponsor these trips and the people who were readers would enjoy going on them because it was sort of Food Arts come to life. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that's kind of what we try to do. It's sort of the magazine in 3D, I guess we could say. Well, and a lot of the chefs were fans, which really helps us. If, on the back cover of the book, we have some very nice, uh, what do you call those compliments, blurbs? I guess? Blurbs. blurbs. Blurbs, yeah. So BJ wrote a blurb for us and he said, 
Till this day, I have stacks of food arts magazines from 2006 and 2008 during the time I worked in St. Thomas. Never in a million years did I think one day I would be cooking for the food arts pioneers. And we, we meet chefs who say they have stacks of food arts like hidden under their bed or something, you know. It's like, it was such a beautiful magazine. I mean, it really was pretty. And well, partly we had a great art director, Nancy Karamarcos, who was also designed the magazine um, largely from Nanette Bedway's photographs. So the two of them uh, deserve the credit for making this book beautiful and looking very much like food arts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You definitely see the connection in the book. Yeah. No doubt about it. So what do you have planned for the future? Do you have another book in the works? Or are you just going to kind of uh, wait until you have, you, you know, forayed into uh, other universes, other cities, whatever? We're like horses at the gate, Liz, waiting for them to <laughs> <laughs> open, open the, the gate. gate. <laughs> So I get, I get calls all the time from our sponsors saying, you know, when do you think, when do you think, this, again, the million dollar question, who knows, but I, I do know that we will pick up exactly where we left off and there's so many interesting places to go. You know, when we, when we first started this, of course, New Orleans has this, you know, rich culinary history, but it was so interesting to to find the Vietnamese guys in New Orleans and what they're doing. We, had, we, had, we traveled to a, <laughs> a uh, questionable strip mall to, to, to uh, Ooh, yeah. do this a Vietnamese restaurant that I think was one of the best meals I've had in a long time. It was just, yeah. you know, we'd see things arriving to other tables and we just kept adding on to order and we'll have that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it doesn't matter what you call it. I just want to eat it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So, I don't know. It's it's just been such an eye opener. And then to the, in some places, like in in Austin, the old and the new guard are joining forces. So, um, you know the oh, I forget the name of the restaurant that with the Franklin barbecue and the Uchi. Um, oh, uh, Tyson Cole uh, yeah. Frank, Franklin's isn't it Franklin's? No, no. The new the new restaurant. The, the oh, the new one. The new one. Wow. <laughs> it didn't come to you when you stopped trying to think about yeah. it. You just shout it out. Uh, but a, a, a guy who's known for sushi and his innovative takes on putting fruit with raw fish, and then this barbecue guru who the only person that's ever cut the line, people bring their own lawn chairs to sit in line, you know. At Franklin Barbecue. Yeah. And the only person was Obama, I think, that they ever let cut the line. And these two disparate, you know, chefs come, coming together with this unbelievable, that's, that's, a, that's a not to miss visit in, in Austin, I would say for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron, Aaron had given us his very first smoker, Aaron Franklin, that we had. Oh, the museum. Oh, great. Uh, so we had a good, have a good relationship with, with him. It, it, it's interesting to see, because uh, mostly our relationships are with Southern chefs because we're at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, and we've we've had our, our gullah meals and all that where people have come. So, you know, 
I'm really interested in both Charleston and in Austin and what you've covered in your book because of just the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. But I'm also interested in Portland just because James Beard was born, you know, lived there. And I, I always wonder what kind of, if he really had any influence or it was just the place he needed to leave, you know. If you only, if you only need one example of the influences, one of his um, well-known um, quotes was, very few people understand the importance of a good sandwich. And our first stop each and every time we go with a group to Portland is um, with this fabulous uh, woman chef, um, Melissa McMillan. And she has um, pastrami zombie is her food truck. And then she has a brick and couple of brick and mortar sandwich restaurants that are, okay, you get a tuna sandwich there. It's fresh tuna from the coast of Oregon that she has poached and then made into this tuna salad. She, she smokes her own brisket and she and chops her own wood. <laughs> and she is wild and crazy and fun. And, and from our very first trip, we just adopted her and she came to every dinner that we had you know, every place else and the chefs just adored her. But, um, Portland is was an eye opener for for me. I don't know about you, Bev, but it really yeah. was. I I didn't expect uh, the depth of um, uh, relationship between the the food purveyors and the and the chefs that we saw. And the other thing that was was for those of us that have been around the three of us in this business for a long time. Um, all of this has happened in like the last six years in Portland. Oh. It's, it's like every time you talk to somebody, you say, well, so when did you, um, you know, oh, five years ago, five years ago, five years ago. <laughs> so it's, it's all very new, but it's like, it's like Brooklyn in that way. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. that it's, it's one of those places it's, it's, it's all happening. So it will be, I think it'll be more challenging for places like that, that are such a new food culture, Mm-hmm. to see what's what the longevity is going to be with with these pressures you know right, right. like new orleans you know will always be yeah it keeps, okay. it keeps, and charleston will always be right it's like the phoenix <laughs> bird you know it keeps rising from the ashes over and over yeah. yeah yeah like new orleans is no stranger to adversity you've had all those storms right. we're having a record year for hurricanes right now just what just just what we all need <laughs> yeah yeah no it's true um, I know that there was that real worry after Hurricane Katrina because so much of the city was just destroyed that what would happen was that it would be like Disneyland and it wouldn't be a real New Orleans. It would be what the perfect New Orleans thing that was in people's minds. Right. But that didn't happen. And what really happened was that because the demographic changed, because there were so many places that were empty right away because they had been flooded and they weren't, they weren't habitable. So many fast food places closed because they, they didn't reopen the fast food places because they had their little formula. And if you didn't meet the formula, it wasn't worth it to them to reopen, which gave 
an opening for all of the mom and pop po'boy shops and all, you know, the red beans counters and all of that kind of thing to open without that fast food competition. And then they got established. And then by the time the fast food started to come back again, those were real established places. So it was perfect. It, yeah. I'm I, a, I wish you wouldn't have said po'boy. Right <laughs> now, <laughs> a little early, but I uh, know it's never too early. Never, never too, too early. Oh boy! Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, now I have to think about where I've been eating um, fried soft shell crab pavoys recently a lot mm. season, and oh, they're just wonderful. Uh. <laughs> What happened, what happened to that restaurant that's sort of attached to your museum that we had those unbelievable crackling? Mm, yes. Oh so that God. was Isaac, um, Isaac Toops restaurant. Yes. Yeah. And they closed at the end of December. Um, his other restaurant, which is going really well, which is called Toops Meadery, is more of a neighborhood restaurant. And so the neighborhood walk there and they eat there all the time. And the museum restaurant was a destination. And so it was not as easy for them to maintain it. So we also were looking to expand because the museum was growing, growing, growing. And because of that, um, we kind of reached a mutual understanding that it was better for us if they closed because then we could just expand into their space. We are getting a liquor license so that we can still serve at that fabulous bar we have. Fabulous bar. We're yeah. Chefs, we're having chefs do pop-ups in the space, but we've moved artifacts into the space. So that has actually become our Louisiana gallery and it's given a much more open feel to the whole place. Because, you know, we just had that, that scrim, that theatrical scrim separating the museum from the restaurant. We just opened the scrim and it's all one, one space. You see, we're completely out of the loop in a few months. We're oh, yeah. <laughs> we have to get back there soon. We've got Ooh. to get back there Ooh. soon. And we've totally finished the yard in the back, the gumbo garden. Oh. It's all strong with fairy lights and there's a big canopy over it with fans and all kinds of things. So it's definitely um, different. We've also opened a meat lab. And um, so we're producing our own andouille and sausage and hams and bacon and doing classes about how to make bacon and hams and whatever. Wow. Really, really expanded. We're doing a lot of baking classes. And then once- Out of that restaurant space? Or um, out out of your teaching kitchen space? The baking is in the teaching kitchen space, but the hams and things are produced in the old restaurant space. But you know, it's in front of everybody because you can come in and see it happening. Right, and right. So that's, that's kind of part of the, the idea of being a food museum. You get to see all of this, you know, somebody will cut you a piece so you can taste it and all of that. So yeah, we're, yeah. Um, we're definitely evolving too. And I think we're all doing a lot more digitally, of course, right now. And uh, um, that's probably just going to continue. 
we this podcast is on our own um, podcast network and now we're getting lots of requests to join our podcast network and so and it's all about food and drink and so um, it's kind of a concentrated thing so if you're really into music it's the wrong podcast network for you but if you're into food you know it's the place where you get to choose different things depending on what you like and what you drink or whatever so um, yeah, we'll be reopening, I think, as a better museum. Very cool. That's cool. We have to get back there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to thank both of you for being here today and sharing your ideas. Tell us where you can get the book. Uh, it's just on Amazon, and you can order it either in paperback format or in Kindle. Okay. Okay. So Amazon is the place to go. And yeah, sure Amazon is definitely the place to go. And then you can go with us virtually on one of these trips. That's, that's what everybody should be doing. The name of the book is On the Road with Flavor Forays. And so you should be able to find it. Everybody knows how to get to Amazon. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Liz. Great to see you. Great to see you, Liz. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.